I've been listening to you. <laughs> have you? What have you been yes, listening? Yes, I have. To? I've been really looking forward to it. Oh, that's nice. I got a lot of things to listen to as you if you've been on my podcast, like scrolling yeah. through tons of stuff. It's true. <laughs> two hundred plus at this point. Going like this wow. is like episode two hundred thirty something. I think thirty three. Yours is going to be around there. So, how long have you been doing it? Uh, about a year and a half at this okay. point. So just pumping out a lot of stuff. And, uh, Deborah always sends me amazing people. Yeah. Well, um, she's amazing too. <laughs> she is. I've had several people. She's like, Darian, what about this person? Cause you know, I don't really have like a, a niche or any, a niche or anything. Like I'll talk to anybody that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So she was telling me a little bit about your book, send it to me. I'm working through it. And I'm fascinated by the topic of the book. So I'd love for you to talk to me a little bit about how you came up with the idea of wanting to do this. Well, this last book um, is a big, it's based on a true story. And it's a big story that I knew when I was a young person. And and some of your listeners will know this story because it's about um, American families that went to Ecuador as missionaries in the 1950s, which is a long time ago, but their story is very famous in, in evangelical church circles. Um, one of the missionary wives wrote a book that has is still in print and it sold half a million copies. Her name is Elizabeth Elliot. So I grew up knowing this amazing story and decades later I you know I began to think about it differently obviously as an adult and because our thinking about missionary enterprises has evolved through the decades. So about five or six years ago I decided to do a bunch of research and um, tell the story in novel form. So should I fill you in on the background of the story a little bit? Well, no, yeah, we could definitely do that. Um, You know, it's funny, I've, I swear I've heard of this a little bit, but maybe it's not the same thing, or or maybe it is, but there's, I guess there has been incidences of people or missionaries going into these uh, essentially untouched uh, native areas where, you know, natives see them and then there's a sense of like, they attack them. Yeah, uh, for yeah. that. And I'm not sure it's the same thing, but it, honestly, it sounds very similar to that. So well, yeah, I think we should ago, dive into it, you know? Yeah. Two years ago, there was an incident in the Indian Ocean with the North yes. Sentinelese where an American man named John Chow approached these people who are protected by the government because they're so vulnerable to contact illnesses. And he was killed by the people. That's but it was it interesting was. to see. Yeah, it was interesting to see that event in, I think it was in, in 2019, compared to the event I wrote about in 1956, because the social attitudes were so different. And people were shocked at this intrusion in reading about it in modern times. But in 1956, the missionaries that went into this indigenous nation in Ecuador were considered heroes and martyrs. You know, they were going into convert and help the people. So clearly our attitudes have evolved a lot. What was the process of writing this book for you? I mean, how do you go about that for yourself? Um, well, um, I should just say that when, that the story was really huge for me when I was a young person. And mm-hmm. Um, it's been very much mythologized by churches so that 
there was almost like a cultish devotion to these figures. Um, Jim Elliott's from your corner of the world. He was from Portland, Oregon, mm -hmm. and he was the leader. And, you know, he was kind of viewed as the example of what every Christian young person wanted to be. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't think about him for decades, but in um, about five or six years ago, I read a New Yorker article about the politics of oil in Ecuador and this terrible environmental catastrophe where the oil companies had gone in and left open tar pits that they had never cleaned up and the water tables were all fouled. And I began to wonder if these indigenous people had any connection to the people that Jim Elliott and his friends had tried to contact. And so I started researching at that point. So just in terms of my process, I did a ton of reading before I started writing. There, there's probably been no missionary enterprise in the modern times that has had as many books written about it. So um, I did wow. a ton of reading and I went to Ecuador twice to do research. You did? Which, wow. Yeah, it was a huge pleasure. It was extremely interesting. What did you learn in your time there? Like what was the kind of the, what was the summation of the whole time there? Well, um, I mean, in a sense, this story is at its heart, it's the story of what happened to these Indigenous people. But I did not set out to write that. Um, I think um, I'm a Canadian, and we're very, it's very, um, very something we talk about a lot now who has the right to tell Indigenous stories. And I kind of felt like this was not mm. my story. But the story of the missionaries I wanted to write because I was really interested in how they, um, you know, it was a, it was an outrageously reckless mission. They went into an area where the people had never had a peaceful contact with outsiders. They didn't speak any of the language, and they just felt they were led by God. And I was so interested in that kind of thinking, how how you could believe something that seems so at odds with reality. So my job when I went to Ecuador was not so much to write what happened to the indigenous people as to imagine myself into the headspace of the missionaries, specifically of the missionary wives. And, you know, it's not a spoiler to say that these um, women all lost their husbands in this enterprise. So there were, you know, five young widows left with, with nine tiny children after this incident. And yet they continued to praise God that he had led their husbands to become martyrs. So I was really interested in how you can um, maintain that kind of mindset. And uh, so when I went in, I, I was very interested in going to where they had lived, to where the mission stations were. And one mm -hmm. of the houses that is very much a set piece in my novel is has been turned into a museum as kind of a shrine to these missionaries. And so I was able to visit it. And um, I was able to visit another one of the stations back in the rainforest. So yeah, it was it was a fantastic way to move into their experience. Oh, I mean, you really, uh, you, in, you immerse yourself, it sounds like, in, in understanding it. I mean, was there as you were exploring this mentality, what were your conclusions about that mentality related to spirituality or religion? Um, well, I, one of the main reviews of this book said, um, you know, Thomas is writing about people who were crazy or deluded or not smart. And I want to say that that was not my position. I didn't want to write about them from the outside and caricature them. Like I, I 
profoundly disagreed with what they did with this intrusion. But I wanted to understand their thinking. I mean, I think right now, um, politically, we're in a situation in the Western world where, you know, there's a lot of divisions and we, we see two profoundly different sets of facts and two different narratives about the political situation. And I saw these people as having a different narrative from me. But I didn't want to just attack them from the outside. I wanted to enter it. And I have to say it was not that hard because my childhood upbringing was in this faith. And so I kind of knew how the world worked from their perspective. Um, but what's tricky when you do that, if you want to empathize with your characters and go deep into their mindset, it's and they're not criticizing themselves, it is tricky to represent the external point of view, you know, to represent what was wrong with what they were doing. And I would say technically that was my biggest challenge as an author. Right. It's, I mean, it sounds like that would be a really big challenge uh, with that. Have you, what has been your position with indigenous people in general? Do you have a position related to that regardless of like this incident? Is, is this kind of a larger picture about indigenous people all over the, the world? Um, well, I think in Canada, we're in a real um, period of of shifting consciousness. You know, oh, really? probably 10 or 15 years ago, I never thought about myself as living on Indigenous lands, as being a settler mm. on Indigenous lands. And I do now. And we've had a huge Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada that has explored our past relationship with Indigenous people. And, um, you know, I'm very aware of that. And I thought... One of the things I suppose I could do is explore my situation as a settler in the center of Canada. But for me, it felt more immediate to explore this whole notion of missions. Because hmm. when I think back to my childhood, we had missionaries come through all the time. And their portrayal of the people that they were ministering to was that they were savages in need of salvation. You know, they mm -hmm. were primitive. They were uncivilized and they needed the light of the gospel brought to them and that we had the only truth. And um, so, you know, I, I wanted to think about what that kind of teaching, how it affected my own community and my society to grow up with that. And, you know, I think we're all thinking about why racism is so hard to root out of our societies. Mm -hmm. And when I wrote this novel, I thought, it's hard for us to move past it because we still hang on to some of these mythologies, you know? Mm. Um, I mean, the, the story of these missionaries, it's called Operation Alka, and it's still huge in North American culture. Um, homeschooled children do a huge curriculum unit on these missionaries, and those that mythology is not really challenged. So I felt like my job was to walk that fine line of challenging the mythology as well as understanding the mindset of the missionaries, which is, was a pretty tall order. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. So how did you, in your, you said it based off your upbringing, it sounds like you kind of broke away from that. And what was that process like, if that's what happened or kind of your metamorphosis? Yeah, with it? yeah it was a, that's a lovely word, Darren. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'll come up with some good ones sometimes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like it's been a lifetime 
um, metamorphosis in a way. But um, yeah, when I went to university, I, it wasn't even very dramatic because I think my doubts had been growing. You know, my my belief in things like the earth was created in six days, 6,000 years ago, or everybody who doesn't believe just like me is going to suffer in hell for eternity, those kinds of things. My belief in them had kind of been undermined, but it took me moving away from my home family to, I guess, admit that. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And And by the time I did, it almost felt like a relief because then I felt like, I could take on the world. You know, I had the whole world. I didn't just have this, the narrow confines of my ideology. So it was a long time ago. It was, you know, decades ago that I made that move. But when I went back to write this book, I was just amazed at how much of that mindset was still there in my thinking. It was, hmm. it, it continued to be a process of, of deconstruction, I guess, as I wrote this novel. Was the novel therapeutic in some way for you? Well, I think so. Excuse me, I'm going to have to clear my throat here. It's okay. Totally fine. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would... It's interesting. Um, when I'm on Twitter these days, I see that there's a whole demographic of people who identify as ex-evangelicals. So they grew up in evangelical mm. churches and they're busy kind of trying to sort out and, and come to terms with what they were taught. And I never identified with that sort of expatriate group. You know, I was just so in such a rush to shake it all off and, and get out and be part of the world. But when I went back to write this novel, I could see that, I mean, there are some things that are very insidious that you believe in that sort of mindset. You know, you believe that that there is a God that is interested in every tiny little thing, like what top you wear when you go to the gym and what, finding you a parking spot on the street and yeah. so on. And, and it's, and you believe that, you, that everyone who is not of your mindset is somehow other. And those things, I think they take a lifetime actually to come to terms with and to understand. And so, yeah, I was, I was coming to terms with it and, as I wrote, like I was, I write about the women. I was very interested in what happened to them um, because I, you know, I haven't sort of talked about their part of the story yet in this interview, but they stayed in Ecuador after their husbands died. And two of them, two years later, actually went into the rainforest to live among the very people that had killed the man and to, um, to try to convert them, which they did successfully. But of course, with that came all of the, um, all of the catastrophe of colonization that they brought in with them, contact illnesses. The, the Warani people um, contracted polio and even died of the common cold. Um, they helped to usher in the oil companies and so on. So it was a very mixed kind of success. But um, I was very interested in the in the indoctrination of those women and the way they dealt with their children, the way the children were indoctrinated. And so I think in, in looking at that, I was kind of thinking of myself probably too. That's so interesting. You know, when I'm listening to this and hearing you speak about it, it, it feels almost more than religious indoctrination of what's happening currently 
that's one sect of things. And as you see where we are politically and all these things and what the truth is or isn't and how we're perceiving that almost is a very similar aspect of things, that it's crossing beyond just, you know, you hear stories of these kind of fanatical religious uh, aspects and things, uh, but now we're getting it in weird and news in different as aspects and and how we perceive things. And it feels like it's a very altered reality. These are all different realities, it feels like, you know. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, when I started writing this book um, five or six years ago, it felt interesting to me, but the thing is, it became more and more relevant through these last five years because of what's mm. happening politically. And I think you're absolutely right. It's not just religious ideology. It's there's a there's tribalism. There's um, yes. as you said, versions of the truth that um, people who are absolutely secular can embrace. And um, I. I, you know, I was so struck by the way the missionaries made a narrative of what had happened to them, and it became the truth that everybody enshrined. But they're not the only ones that do that. And, and one of the ways that yes. I think of that <laughs> mostly is to do with climate change and environmental issues. Mm -hmm. um, because we have so much trouble shifting our narrative of how we use natural resources and how we live in the world. It's quite astonishing to me how profound our mythologies about nature and our place in it are. Oh my gosh. Joan, I was literally just having this conversation last night because I was watching this new documentary called I Am Greta. And it's about this 15-year-old girl who's, um, you know, fighting, you know, for climate change, just rise to her prominence about climate change. And this tiny little girl who's has so much uh, passion about it. Yeah. But it's interesting kind of in the beginning of it, how, you know, you hear all these statements from people who have this, their own personal myth-making about climate change. And I think so, and I, I guess in my stumbling in the words is that these things are all different personal myth-making realities that people have. Your book is one version of something. Politics is one version of reality whatever, you know, people who are in, are doing, um, psychopaths have one version of reality for that, you know, like is, is what is these, what are these versions? Are they good? Are they bad? Do they hurt people? Do they give people comfort? I mean, even you're looking at, and let's say Christianity is basically like 30,000 versions of, of those things. And some are very warm and kind and some are very fire and brimstone. It's like, what reality are you existing in? Yes, that's right. I mean, it's very easy for us to look at somebody with a different, in a different bubble, in a different yes. echo chamber and say they're mm -hmm. deluded, but we are blind to our own bubbles and our own echo chamber. Yes, you're in your own matrix and your own, your own thing may be very terrible, but you, how do you know, how do you know you're in your reality if you don't know it is your reality? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, and one of the ways I tried to capture this in the book is that I, I embody five different points of view of different characters in the book. And I love writing that mm -hmm. way, setting up different points of view so that you get this energy going back and forth between different sections of the book because they each have such profoundly different points of view. And I could do this in this book, even though these people have the same ideology, because personal perspectives are so different, too. Um, yes. So, 
yeah, I mean, I see fiction writing as all about those kinds of points of view. Um, and yeah, yeah, I guess I'll just say too that one of the things that moved me the most was to read about these indigenous people that the missionaries reached. They're called, the missionaries called them the Alka, but that was actually a term of derision that was used in Ecuador. It wasn't their real tribal name. Mm. And eventually we've learned that they're called the Warani. And the missionaries' vision of them was so, um, it was so caricatured. I mean, they're described as being half beast and half demon. And they were, you know, just kind of um, sort of the ultimate in in primitivism and violence, according to the way the missionaries wrote. And then when I read about them from the anthropological point of view, um, yes, there was, there were violence killings for sure they really protected their seclusion they had never allowed a peaceful contact they protected their autonomy and um, their lands but I had to think back to the fact that we, we had just come off World War II in the Western world and all of the you know the Holocaust and so these indigenous people protecting their lands were described as violent and primitive whereas the Western people had kind of justified um, our version of warfare. So, you know, I just saw the two visions there too. And when I read about the Warani people, I was so moved by their connection to the land and the sort of meditative way they lived with each other, the sharing protocols and the spirituality of their collection, yes. their connection to the rainforest. It was really moving. Um, <clears throat> and I guess I just want to say too that that one of the things that moved me the most is that these Indigenous people now are at the forefront of trying to protect the rainforest from further industrial Mm -hmm. intrusions. And they've just won, last year they won a huge court victory to stop further oil exploration in their lands. And um, um, the head of their community organization is a a young woman named Namanti Ninkimo, and she's just been named as... Um, one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people for her work in protecting the rainforest. So, I mean, the irony of that really struck me that the missionaries thought they were going in to save the Alka Indians. And now we have the Warani who are working hard to save the rainforest as the lungs of the planet to protect our our ecology. It's amazing. It's truly amazing. Well, so what do you, you know, as you wrapped up, you know, writing the book, it's out. What do you want people, what do you hope that people learn from reading this book? Um, well, I hope that, um, I hope that, that their awareness of what you and I have talked about, that, that, that comes through that the fact that, I mean, it's kind of humbling to realize how our own version of, of, our own narrative of events and our own version of reality um, is not absolute. (laughs) Uh, In the notes at the end, I quote um, an anthropologist named Wade Davis, who says, um, other people, other cultures of the world are not failed attempts at being you. And I just love that. I think it Mm. kind of captures what the novel is. Most definitely. Joan, I have to tell you, you are a lovely speaker. And um, you provide such a rich context for the art that you've created. 
and uh, actually I'm enjoying reading the book. Um, and I think it's well written. And I think for my listeners, I highly encourage them to read Five Wives. It's an excellent piece well, of literature. Great. Well, thank you so much. And if, if um, listeners do read the book and they want to be in touch with me, I have a website and I actually do visit book clubs that are reading the book too. So I would be happy to do that. That is amazing. Thank you so much, Joan, for your time. And uh, we'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Take care. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching. And finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut or The Dose of News Useful Today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine, and when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences, and it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about. And it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else. It's your daily reminder that there is good in the world, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. So, get the donut. Stay informed. It's 100% free. You can unsubscribe anytime. Visit thedonut.co or text donut to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.